Ladies and gentlemen, it is my, my great pleasure to address you today on the topic of protection of the atmosphere. While this may sound like rather vague and hazy topic on first hearing, understanding this topic may seem to be like trying to grasp a, grasp a cloud. But I hope that my presentation today will clear up such a misty impression and convince you that the atmosphere presents an interesting and important legal topic. Today, I'd like to speak first on the International Law Commission itself, and then on why I have been proposing the topic on the environmental protection of the atmosphere. I was elected to the commission in May 2009, filling the vacancy created by the departure of Ambassador Chusei Yamada. Well, some 30 years ago, between 1980 and 82, I was a legal officer for the UN, UN Office of Legal Affairs Codification Division, servicing the International Law Commission. So I had been very familiar with the ILC over the years. As you, as you are well aware, the ILC is unique for an organ of the United Nations as it is composed of members who act not as state representatives, but in their individual capacity. The members of the Commission work in the collegial spirit based on mutual respect and solidarity as lawyers, though each of them represents his or her unique legal culture and background. The ILC is emphatically not a political organ that makes new law. Instead, it is a legal organ charged with codification and progressive development of international law on the basis of existing or emerging customary international law. The nature of work of the Commission is supposed to be an objective, almost scientific research rather than political negotiation. Therefore, members are meant to apply their legal expertise in their individual capacity rather than merely represent, represent the political interests of their states. And I believe that this neutrality is important to maintain the basic character of the Commission. Well, to give you a brief historical sketch of the Commission, it had a marvelous record in the 1950s and 60s. The ILC produced a number of influential codification conventions such as the four Geneva Conventions on the Law of the Sea, the Vienna Convention on Diplomatic and Consular Relations, and the Vienna Convention on the Law of Treaties, just to name a few. However, in the 1970s and 80s, the ILC's work gradually became difficult because it started dealing with topics of progressive development, which inevitably contained certain elements of new lawmaking and thus created some tensions within the Commission as well as in the Sixth Committee of the General Assembly. The ILC's productivity declined during these years. In the 1990s, we witnessed the ILC's revival, which was well demonstrated by the com completion of the draft articles on state responsibility in 2001. However, during the past decade, it appears that the ILC slowed down again, 
Well, as far as the production of draft articles for future conventions is concerned, the RC is now at a crossroads, to, but I think it still has a very important role to play. Since the RC has exhausted during the last century most of the traditional topics, we need, we need to go into the areas of uh, special regimes such as human rights law, environmental law, and economic law. Given that the ILC is a body composed primarily of experts of general international law, some people may see here a dilemma between general international law and special fields of international law. While on the contrary, I see new possibilities and new opportunities for the Commission in this new century which I will explain in a moment. <clears throat> As you know, there has been a mushroom growth of treaties in each, each of these special fields. We call this a treaty congestion and treaty inflation. There is a great number of conventions in each field of these special regimes. There are significant gaps as well as overlaps because there has been little or no coordination or harmonization, and therefore no coherence among them. But this is precisely the pathological phenomenon that I have characterized in my book as compartmentalization, or fragmentation, if you like, of international law. <clears throat> well, this is where I see great opportunities for the, for the ILC. In our exercise of progressive development and codification of international law, we will deal with the proposed new topics of special fields from perspectives of general international law in order to fill the gaps or solve the overlaps of existing treaties and to ensure coordination among various compartments of international law. I believe that the ILC is virtually the only organ that can play such a role under the guidance of the Sixth Committee. <clears throat> well, in, in, in any event, unless it, it can demonstrate its ability to produce good draft articles for future conventions, I'm afraid that some will start question the Commission's very reason for being. What is most important in this context is to select good, attractive topics for the work of the Commission. Well, the criteria for the selection of ILC topics have been clearly established in the practice of the Commission. First, the practical consideration as to whether there is any pressing need in the international community as a whole. Second, the technical feasibility of, topic, of the topic, that is, whether the topic is ripe enough in light of the relevant state practice and literature. And third, the practical feasibility, practical feasibility, I'm, I'm sorry, the, the third, the political feasibility, that is, whether dealing with a proposed topic might or might not meet strong political resistance from states. It should be recalled that the Commission stressed in its 1998 report that it should not restrict itself to traditional topics, but should also consider topics 
that reflect new developments in international law and pressing concerns of the international community as a whole. Well, as soon as I joined the Commission in 2009, I proposed a new topic on the protection of the atmosphere at the working group on, on the long-term program work. Degradation of the atmosphere or atmospheric environment as ex exemplified by transboundary air pollution, ozone depletion, and climate change has been a matter of serious concern of the international community. Because the atmosphere or air is so dynamic and flows across state borders, the atmosphere needs to be treated as a single global unit in a compre comprehensive manner. I believe, I believe that the topic satisfies the three feasibility tests and will benefit from rich state practice relevant to the topic, including numerous judicial decisions and conventions. I believe, therefore, that it is a good topic for the, for the Commission to take up. There are several judicial decisions by international courts and tribunals which are relevant to our study on this subject. The Trail Smelter Wars of 1938 and 41 laid the ground for the law of transboundary air pollution. Trail Smelter remains a leading case even today affirming the customary principle of good neighborliness in bilateral arrangements between the neighboring countries. The case is representative of the traditional type of international environmental dispute in the sense that the causes and effects of the environmental damage are identifiable and in the sense that a, territory, a territorial state is under an obligation to exercise due diligence over the activities of individuals and companies within, within its territory in order to ensure that these activities do not cause harm to other states and, and their nationals. Following the trail smelter operation, the nuclear test case between Australia and France, between New Zealand and France in 1973, before the International Court of Justice, ICJ, sparked heated discussions relating to possible atmospheric pollution. The ICJ also referred in its advisory opinion on the legality of, of the use of uh, nuclear weapons in 1996 to the obligation of states to refrain from causing significant environmental damage beyond their borders through transboundary pollution, including as atmospheric pollution. Though not directly relate, related to pollution of the atmosphere, the gabuchkovo najumaros project case between Slovenia and Hungary in 1997 addressed the issue of environmental harm in broader perspective. In the recent judgment of the pulp mills on the river Uruguay case between Argentina and Uruguay, rendered in April 2010, the court referred in part to the, to the issue of alleged air pollution to the extent relevant to the reverse aquatic environment. Furthermore, the aerial herbicide spraying case between Ecuador and Colombia, currently pending before the ICJ, may also address the subject.
And finally, the WTO case on the United States standards for reformulated and conventional gasoline in 1996, the so-called gasoline case, posed the important question of the compatibility of a country's domestic law, in this case the U.S. Clean Air Act, Clean Air Act of 1990, with the, with the trade provisions of the WTO GATT. Well, in addition to these judicial decisions, there is a long list of the relevant multilateral and bilateral conventions, but I'm not going to bore you with naming each of them, each of them here. Just to highlight some of these conventions, the 1979 Geneva Convention on Long-Range Transboundary Air Pollution was formulated under the auspices of the United Nations Economic Commission for Europe, ECE, in the form of a framework, framework agreement to meet, to meet the major concerns about acid rain and other dispersed pollutants in Europe. A series of eight separate protocols have been subsequently negotiated and, uh, and agreed. The ASEAN Agreement on Transboundary Haze Pollution was signed in 2002, but short of one ratification, it has not uh, come, come, into yet, come, to, come into effect yet. There is also the Canada-US Air Quality Quality Agreement of 1991. Well, these are regional or bilateral agreements to regulate transboundary air pollution. As multilateral conventions on global atmospheric, atmospheric problems, we all know about the uh, Vienna Convention for the Protection of the Ozone Layer of 1985 and the Montreal Protocol of 1987, and the UN Framework Convention on climate change of 1992 and the Kyoto Protocol of 1997. Well, the rationale for, for codification and progressive de development of international law on the, on the atmosphere should be clear to you now. The, the number of relevant conventions notwithstanding, they are they have remained merely as a patchwork of instruments, leaving substantial gaps and loopholes, as well as overlaps, from the viewpoint of ge geographical coverage, regulated activities, controlled substances, and most importantly, the applicable principles and rules for the environmental protection of the transboundary and global atmosphere. Regrettably, there is no convention at present which covers the whole range of environmental problems of the, of the atmosphere in a comprehensive and systematic manner. The piecemeal approach has its particular limitations for the atmospheric env environment, which by its very nature warrants holistic treatment. Thus, the present proposal envisages an instrument similar to Part 12 of the United Nations Law of the Law of the Sea Convention (UNCLOS) on the protection of and the preservation of the marine environment. Now, let me explain what the atmosphere is. As you see in this figure, 
80% of air mass exists in the troposphere and 20% in the stratosphere. So we are concerned only with these two layers in our project, which is sometimes called lower atmosphere, that is up to 50 to well, 40 to 50 kilometers above ground. Accordingly, we are not concerned in our project with the upper atmosphere, not to mention outer space. Incidentally, we, we still don't know where the airspace ends and where the outer space begins. There is no consensus on that point yet. But the regime of airspace is largely irrelevant in our project because it, it does not make much sense to say that, you know, this is my air, my country's airspace, so this is our atmosphere, because air moves very quickly all the time. If you look at, if you look at the globe from a distance, you will see a very thin, hazy layer covering the Earth, and that is the atmosphere. It is a common natural resource which is indispensable for the survival of humankind. Now, please take a look at the next figure, which demonstrates where the atmospheric problems actually occur. There are three particularly important causes for the degradation of the, of the atmosphere. First, the introduction of harmful substances, that is, air pollution, into the troposphere and lower stratosphere causes changes in atmospheric conditions. The major contributing causes of air pollution are acids, nitroxides, sulfur oxides, and hydrocarbon emissions, such as the carbon dioxide. Strong horizontal winds, such as jet streams, can quickly transport and spread these trace, trace gases horizontally over all over the globe, far from their original sources. Second, CFCs and harons emitted into the upper troposphere and stratosphere cause ozone depletion. Ozone has the same chemical structure whether it occurs miles above the Earth or at ground level. It can be good or bad depending on its location in the atmosphere. The main concent concentration of ozone, that is, good ozone, uh, at altitudes of uh, 15 to 40 kilometers above the Earth. The, the ozone layer filters, filters out ultraviolet radio radiation from the sun, which may cause skin cancer and other injuries to life. Third, changes in, in the composition of the troposphere and lower stratosphere cause climate change. The main cause of human-induced climate change is the emission of gases such as carbon dioxide, CO2, nit nitrous oxide, and methane. Uh, these are called greenhouse gases. In recent years, there has been growing scientific evidence that tropospheric ozone and black carbon are the two substances in the atmosphere 
most directly threatening, threatening both air quality and climate change. This clearly demonstrates the linkage between transboundary air pollution and climate change, and also the gap existing in the current treaty regime, which needs to be filled by a comprehensive multilateral convention on the atmosphere. Well, as you see, the topic such as the protection of the atmosphere requires certain scientific and technical knowledge if the IRC decides, and I hope it will, to deal with for its codification and progressive development of international law. I believe that it is in indispensable for the Commission to reach out to the international environmental organizations and to the scientific community. The statute of the Commission authorizes in Article 14E to, to consult with scientific institutions and individual experts. There are also good precedents. Uh, Ambassador Yamada, when he was special rapporteur for the topic on transboundary aquifers, engaged UNESCO's, UNESCO's experts of hydrology of aquifers for successful completion of the draft articles on the subject. The Special Rapporteur for the topic on the protection of persons in the event of disasters, Mr. Valencia Uspina, is following such a course as well. Well, it has, it has clearly been this sort of approach that has made, made it possible for the Commission to, to reach sets of principles that make sense not only to lawyers who frame them, but also to the scientific and technical community as well. In January 2011, I was in Nairobi, Kenya, and visited UNEP, United Nations Environmental Program. I had a two-day workshop at UNEP on the protection of the atmosphere, and was extremely encouraged by the, ex by the experts I met there, who agreed that we need a holistic convention on the, on the atmosphere, and they assured us of, of their strong support and cooperation. I also had a half-day workshop in Geneva in July 2011 with experts of Geneva-based international organizations such as ECE and WMO, the World Meteorological Organization. I find this sort of dialogue between lawyers and scientific technical experts extremely useful. Well, let me give you a brief outline of the work that I envisage for, the, for this topic. Embarking on elaboration of draft articles on, on the protection of, atmos of the atmosphere, the first challenge that the Commission will face is the definition of the atmosphere the legal status of the atmosphere. The next, the basic principles for, for the protection of the atmosphere, such as the general obligation of states to protect the atmosphere, and the obligation of, of states vis-a-vis -vis other states and areas outside national jurisdiction not to cause significant harm to the atmosphere. With regard to the, to the measures of prevention and precaution to protect the atmosphere, one of the, one of the outstanding issues will be the differentiation 
and relationship between the traditional preventive principle and relatively new precautionary principle. Preventive measures should be taken where probable damage is foreseeable with clear causal links and proof, whereas in contrast, precautionary measures ought to be taken even where the damage is scientifically uncertain. Environmental impact assessments will be crucial in certain situations. Implementation of the prescribed obligations should be carried out through the domestic law of each state. Conflict and coordination with trade law will be particularly important. Desirable procedures for cooperation, technical or otherwise, and pertinent measures for capacity building should be explored. With respect to the procedural rules for compliance, notification, exchange of information, consultation, reporting systems, pleasure and review, promotional and enforcement procedures should be considered among others. And then attribution of responsibility, due, di due diligence, liability for high-risk activities and civil liability are no doubt critical issues to be considered in connection with about state's obligations. Finally, on dispute settlement, while recognizing the specific nature of each dispute settlement body, questions of a general nature such as jurisdiction, admissibility and standing, as well as proof of scientific evidence should be considered. Well, I admit that this is indeed an ambitious project, but I'm hopeful, hopeful for its success. You know that one of the most significant achievements in the field of international lawmaking of the 20th century was the United Nations Convention on the, on the Law of the Sea, adopted in 1982. Well, this is sometimes called the constitution of the oceans. If we were to envisage an analogous development in international law in the 21st century, I think that it must be the constitution of the atmosphere. Although I must hasten myself to add that uh, my, propo my proposal is a much more modest one, dealing only with the environmental protection of the atmosphere. Well, you may recall that it took Malta's ambassador, Arvid Pardo's untiring passion to pave the way for the Law of the Sea Convention. Likewise, codifying and progressively developing the law necessary for, for a convention on the protection of the atmosphere is by no means an unrealistic dream if we approach the topic with similar passion and prudence. I hope that you will join me in the pursuit of this lofty exercise. Well, before I, before I conclude, I'd like to refer to President John F. Kennedy's speech, which he made at the commencement of uh, American University on June 10th, 1963, nearly a half century ago. Well, this was a historic, historic speech in which he announced his support for the Nuclear Test Ban Treaty, or Moscow Treaty, which was actually signed soon afterwards. In his speech, he said, I quote, 
We all inhabit this small planet. We all breathe the same air. We all cherish our children's futures. Well, no one can deny Kennedy's point that we all breathe the same air. And I hope that in this spirit, we can protect the atmosphere for all our children's futures. Thank you for your kind attention.